Our scripture reading for this morning is from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its sharer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this, the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Really, really good to see you this morning. Uh, family, of course, I uh, love you. You already know that. Really good to see you. But if you're not yet a part of our family, visiting with us today uh, for the first time, maybe even super glad to have you with our family. Would absolutely love to have you become a part of our family. We can talk about that later. Let's pray and we'll get right down to work. We just sang, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We said the words, help our hearts to believe the words and make it true pray that your kingdom would come here in Okinawa. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our own hearts um, for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those not yet adopted in. Father, we pray that your glory would cover Okinawa like the waters cover the sea, that your beauty would be inescapable here for anybody. Um, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus for our rescue. We thank you for pouring out your spirit to bring our hearts to life. And we pray again this morning that you would breathe 
the breath of life through your spirit into our hearts. Open our ears to hear you, our Father's voice, and open our eyes to see Jesus as our hero and rescuing King, your promised Messiah. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we only have two weeks left in our series in Acts, um, which is sad. I've really loved this time with you. And we've seen our theme throughout has been consistent, simply spirit-empowered. And what we've been learning is that we are God's spirit-empowered family. We exist here in Okinawa for the good of others, those not yet adopted or rescued into the family. Here's our big idea from the passage this morning that Heather just read for us. The Spirit speaks to his family and sends them to save people in faraway desert places. So let's summarize not only what Heather just read for us, but what we've been learning in the last few weeks from Acts. Uh, Our main character, once again, is Philip. He's featured prominently in each of the narratives over the last couple of weeks. We met him a few weeks ago. Philip was on a widow care team with a guy named Stephen and five others. And this team had been stood up by the the church in Jerusalem to ensure that minority and immigrant widows received the same level of care that the majority widows were receiving. These women that had grown up in and around Jerusalem and were well-networked were receiving great care. But those who had immigrated to the city later in life or perhaps belonged to people groups on the outside, uh, the church was failing. And so they stood up this team to make sure that they all received equitable, life-giving care. And what we saw a couple weeks ago that Stephen sadly was stoned to death for his public allegiance to Jesus. He was stoned to death. And his death sparked a firestorm of persecution against the church in Jerusalem, so much so that Christians fled the city. Uh, so Philip escapes the city, along with most of the Christians. We read maybe a week ago that really it was only the apostles and probably a small corps that remained with them in the city. Everybody else had to run away for their lives. They were either being locked up or killed like Stephen. So Philip, our main character, travels to a city in the region of Samaria. He shares the gospel, the good news that Jesus is, in fact, God's promised rescuing king. Many people in this village receive the gospel and believe. The Holy Spirit is present in power. He, through uh, Stephen, I'm sorry, through Philip, is healing the lame, healing those who are uh, just unwell and have been sick for a lifetime. And he's bringing, he's restoring life and wholeness. And so the the summary statement in that whole chapter was one of joy when uh, the gospel just blew up in the city and the spirit was at work. And the outcome is always joy. And friends, that's true in your life too. If the Spirit is at work in your life and the gospel is forming you, joy will be the outcome. We learned last week that our Father uses persecution, or in our context, PCS, or immigration, right? He uses these things to scatter His Spirit-empowered family around the globe for the good of those not yet adopted in. I mean, Jesus had told His followers that they would serve as His witnesses, around the world. He didn't tell them how they were going to get around the world, but he told them it was going to happen. He told them. And now we know our father uses a variety of circumstances, some of which we don't like. I don't like PCS season. I just don't like it. I don't have to like it. I like the outcome that God scatters his kids around the world for the good of other people, but it still hurts. 
But that's what he does. He uses circumstances like this for the good of those not yet adopted in. In today's passage, the Spirit verbally tells Philip to leave that village in Samaria where we left him last week. He said, get up. I want you to go south to the road that ran from Jerusalem to Gaza. So for my visual learners with me, uh, here you go. If you like geography, I, I know the print's small, and I'm sorry. Uh, the blue number one is Jerusalem. That's where the story all began, right? That's ground zero. Persecution flared up. Philip escapes north to that village in Samaria. That's the number two. And then in our text that Heather just read for us this morning, that's where the Spirit speaks to him and tells him to go down to that number three there, that road running through the desert from uh, Jerusalem to Gaza. And so that's where we see uh, Philip today. Philip is just told to go. Did you notice he wasn't given a reason why? No reason, just go to the desert. Like go to this road in the desert. Philip goes, he arrives, he finds Ethiopia's secretary of the treasury pulled over in his up-armored chariot with his entourage. A guy like that would not be traveling alone. Not happening. Up-armored chariot, well-armed security. Like he is, he's definitely not by himself. Quick historical note, uh, the Ethiopia that we're reading about here in the text is not the equivalent of modern-day Ethiopia, not the same place. Here's an, one more map for you, and I promise I'm not going to nerd out on you beyond this. This is really going to be it, okay? Uh, this is the area that we're talking about, though. Um, we're talking about the kingdom of Mero. You see it there on the map, M-E-R-O-E, which was within the Nubian Empire. You can read about that in whatever online encyclopedia uh, you like. That's the area that we're talking about. It's not modern-day Ethiopia. It's actually in what is modern-day Sudan. That's really the geographic area uh, that we're talking about. The Egyptians, if you love the Old Testament, you've read and reread, the Egyptians referred to these people or this area as Cush. You've seen that word in the Old Testament, right? The, um, not the Egyptians, but the Greeks knew it as Ethiopia. And probably that's why we're reading it that way in our New Testament, um, Ethiopia. What you got to know is Christianity absolutely flourished here for centuries. Archaeology has borne that out. Christianity was blowing up in Africa. And what we need to know is Christianity was blowing up in Africa well before the gospel spilled into Europe and long before the Americas were even on a world map. The gospel took root in Africa. So we need to be careful as people from the West, and here's where we need to be careful. Too often in the West, we center America and Europe, especially the Reformation, in our view of Christian history. But this narrative in Acts reminds us that Africans were following Jesus long before Europeans and long before Americans or the American idea was even a dream. You've heard of the city of Alexandria, right, in your history studies? It was one of three kind of early epicenters of Christian thought and education, and missional movement, just, just such a progressive academic culture and a um, just deeply formed gospel culture. Where was Alexandria? Africa. I know you've heard the name Augustine and Tertullian, maybe not so much as his boy Augustine, maybe which is a shame. You need to read some Tertullian as well. Africans, men from Africa. 
So we need to be careful, right? Allow this narrative to remind us that Africans were following Jesus long before Europeans or Americans. Why is that important for us? I think just two reasons, and then I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll move from the history and get, get back in the text, but this is really important. Two reasons. If our understanding of Christian history starts with Europe, the Reformation, or the Mayflower, we are missing about 1,500 years of Christian history and Christian writing. That's a serious gap, guys. That's a big gap. Okay, so we've got to be aware of that. Second, and this may be more personal, if it doesn't apply to you, fantastic. If it applies to you, um, please take it for what it's worth and what it's been for me. I grew up around some books and some voices which taught that there was a silver lining to American slavery or to the slave trade. And that silver lining, as I was taught or as I read, was this, that slaves were introduced to the gospel because slavery rescued them from a godless continent and brought them to a continent where the gospel was deeply rooted. But based upon our passage in Acts and based on church history, that claim is both historically inaccurate, tragically so, and it is a miserable attempt to justify an incredible evil that was perpetuated against millions of people. So we got to be historically informed and textually informed. This is coming right out of Acts. And I just want to challenge you as your friend and as your pastor, as you're building your summer reading list, do you have anything on your list that explores Christian expression over the 1,500 years in Africa before America and even before it filtered into the U.S.? Do you have anything or into Europe? All right. So maybe make that a goal. Some African writing as it relates to the history of Christianity on that continent, Christian expression would be a fantastic addition to all of our uh, summer reading lists. If you have a uh, need for some recommendations, I'd be glad to make those. All right, back into Acts 8. The Spirit says, Philip, I want you to walk right up next to that up-armored chariot with the national seal on it. Don't be awkward. You won't get shot. Just stand there, right? Just walk up to the presidential motorcade. They won't mind. Just stand there. So Philip walks over. He hears the man reading from a scroll containing the writings of the prophet Isaiah, which is crazy. Normal people did not have scrolls with prophet Isaiah's writings. They would belong in the temples, the synagogue, like the worship gathering places, blue collar people like us. No scrolls. Like you don't have scrolls. So he spent a lot of money from the treasury for these scrolls, right? And so Philip says, uh, hey, man, I hear you reading the prophet Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, not at all. It's so confusing, which was the first piece of our text that just gave me so much encouragement this week. Because I'm like, yeah, that's my man right there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of those massive prophetic writings. It's not light reading. There's some tough stuff in there, right? So he's one of us. We can relate. So Philip climbs into his up armor. Like, dude, he's like living a boy's dream right now. This is a big deal. He climbs in. He shows how Isaiah's writings point to Jesus, how Jesus fulfilled. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah wrote about, all these things. But apparently the uh, secretary of the treasury needed to get back to work because they continue to drive while Philip explains Isaiah. They're driving while they're talking. They come upon a body of water. The Ethiopian man says, dude, 
you got me. Like, I believe, I'm tracking. Jesus is my promised rescuing king. I want to follow him. What's preventing me from getting baptized? Baptism was and is kind of the initiation into the family, right? By faith, we believe. Baptism's that outward expression of, yo, I was a rebel, and now I'm being adopted into God's family as a son or a daughter. What's preventing me? Nothing. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. And they go down into the water He's baptized. We read that Philip comes up out of the water, and the text says that the Spirit takes Philip to a place called Azotus. I'll just pull that map up one more time real quick so you can see it. So now we're number four, right? Uh, It's also known as Ashdod. It was kind of an ancient Philistine city, uh, about 20, 25 miles north. And just notice how the text reads it. He just, like, Philip finds himself there. He finds himself. So you may be wondering, boy, that sounds supernatural. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like he found, like the Spirit just moved him to this place. He finds himself there. And it says, in the days to come, he passes through on the way to Caesarea. So he keeps working north and he stops in at each town and he shares the good news of Jesus there. And if we were to do this, we won't go there today, but if we, well, there it is, Acts 21 8, like 20 years later in Acts narrative, what we find out is Philip actually made a home in Caesarea, built a house, bought a house. Like this is before lumber prices just went whack. So he gets a place. He settles down, and he has four daughters. And so when we find him again 20 years later, he's got four unmarried daughters, all of whom have been gifted with a gift of prophecy, just a really life-giving, beautiful family in Caesarea. Okay, so that's our summary. And again, our big idea, the Spirit speaks to his family and sends them to save people in faraway desert places. Let's just start with the beginning of that sentence, the Spirit speaks. Have you seen this quote before? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Uh, It says, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. How do you feel about that? I know, I'm just, I saw some shoulders. I don't don't know. Um, I have mixed emotions, okay? I like it because it's mostly true. God has spoken definitively in his word right? This is our Father's voice. Definitive, authoritative, unchanging, life-shaping, all the things. I don't like the second part so much for two reasons. Um, my voice is not my dad's voice speaking out loud. Like, I get what he's saying. Like, I read it out loud. It's the same. You know, so I got it, but meh, not feeling that so much. But here's what I real and I used to say this all the time, and I think I need to repent of it and probably not say it again, because I feel like that quote is dismissive of passages like this one, because what it suggests is the only way that God speaks to his kid, kids is through the word and in no other way. But guys, look, it's so clear here. First in verse 26, Luke, the author of Acts, is saying that God first spoke to Philip through an angel. Now that word angel, especially in the Old Testament scriptures, can often mean just messenger, like a human being who's a messenger, or an angel, not precious moments, like not, not that image that you have in your, your, your mind, but somebody sent from heaven on behalf of God. Um, but then, it, look, verse 29 is so clear. The Spirit speaks for himself. The Spirit said to Philip. He spoke, and we're led to believe these were audible words. Philip heard them, and they were specific, and he acted on them. Now listen, some of us, depending on our kind of theological tribe or your church tribe growing up, some of us have spent a lifetime arguing against the possibility that the Spirit speaks in this way. And you're like, no, dog, it's the Bible only. No other way. That's my tribe. That's kind of what I grew up in, okay? So um, in that tribe, 
we would get super uncomfortable when somebody said, God told me, or God said to me, we're like, nah, he, he doesn't do that anymore. So we had our own vocabulary that was safer, and it was, um, God's impressed upon my heart. That doesn't require any verbal speaking, right? It's just an emotion. Uh, or uh, I feel led. Maybe that's the most common one. Like, look, well, it's making you feel led. I don't know, right? So different tribes, like we kind of, we, we put these things in different boxes. But guys, it's pretty clear in this passage that the Holy Spirit is speaking for himself and Philip is not reading a copy of the scriptures. Now, some of you expect the Spirit to speak this way to you all the time. That's not normative. Could he if he wanted to? Of course. God, the Spirit, can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and speak however he wants to. But as we read the narrative of the, like the entirety of the New Testament scripture, what seems to be normative is that we've got our Father's voice here. The Spirit uses the words that have already been spoken. And periodically, when he wants to, for our good, he speaks audibly to us, right? But what we have to be careful is to go to either extreme. We've got to recognize that he speaks in both ways and perhaps more normatively through his word, but not to the exclusion of speaking like this, like he did for Philip individually. So the best thing that we should do probably if we want to hear the Spirit speak, do you want to hear the Spirit speak to you? Like Philip experienced? You want that? Okay. If you desire that, the best thing that you can do for yourself is to train your ears to hear his voice by listening to what he's already spoken in the Word. Listening regularly to what he has already spoken. That will help you recognize his voice. And then we, especially if you're like me, in the background I come from, you can join me in confessing and actually asking your dad to speak this way to you through the Spirit. This was my journal entry from Monday, Monday morning, as I kind of journaled my way through this passage. I wrote, Dad, have you been speaking to me this way? Is it that I'm just not listening? I said, Dad, I think I've spent most of my life arguing against your spirit communicating to your kids in this way, and I just need to say, I'm sorry. Please speak to me like you did to Philip, and please give me ears to listen. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're a little bit like me in that way. So here's what we see. The spirit speaks. It's clear. Like you just, it's clear in the text. And very often when he does, he speaks to send his kids. Here's the next very important piece. In verse 26, we learn that Philip was sent to a desert place. So let me just ask you this question again, because I know I already asked you once. Do you want to hear the Spirit of God speak to you? Do you, do you desire that? Are you sure? Like, no, really, are you sure? You want more of the Spirit's voice? Like, are you sure you do? And here's why I ask you that way, and maybe just give you a moment of pause. Because when he speaks... He very often speaks to send his family to desert places, not desirable places. Guys, we've got to be awake to the reality that our Western experience has so sanitized the gospel and the message of the Bible to make it safe and to make it about our father just wanting this good existence for us in this lifetime, happiness, safety, retirement, all the things. It's not his thing, guys. It's so sanitized. When the Spirit speaks, he's not speaking so that we can experience like our best life now kind of expression of Christianity. 
He's speaking to send his kids to dangerous desert places for good of other people. That's what we see in this narrative. First, he sends Philip to a specific road. Then he sends him to a specific man in a chariot on that road. But did you notice he gives one instruction at a time? The Spirit never provided Philip with a reason why he was asking him to do what he did. Didn't tell him why he was going to the road on the desert. In fact, when we see him tell him to go to the chariot, did he, did he say why? He just awkward, like go stand right next to the motorcade. Just stand there. But no explanation why. The Spirit gave clarity only once Philip was in the desert, not before. He said, go over and join, I love this, this chariot. Maybe there were others pulled over there, I don't know. But very specifically, that one, dude, that one, and stay near it. It's clear, it's simple, it's one step at a time. No mystery, it's not a scavenger hunt, but he's also not giving a reason why. Almost like your kid, man, like taking him by the hand, we're gonna go to this thing or this person and do this thing, why dad, why dad, why dad? Just very patient, persistent, and clear. And this is so hopeful for me because I feel like Philip perfectly represents us. Like if the Spirit's going to speak to me, it needs to be this specific and this step-by-step. Step. Don't leave any room for me to mess it up, Dad, because I will. This was my journal entry from Tuesday. I just wrote, Dad, I don't listen well. I never have. And I wrote, part of my problem is I analyze everything. It's super critical analyzing, studying. So I just wrote, Dad, please help me hear your spirit's voice. Help me to listen. Help me to trust. Help my response to be more like Philip's. Make my heart and my body actually get up and go in obedience to you. Maybe that's something that some of us need to confess. Like we are just like that three or four year old kid that we used to be and we believe the Spirit speaks, we want Him to speak, but all we ever ask is why. I need a reason before I go to the desert. Do you? You don't trust your dad? Like, What do you need the reason for? You need the reason before you can walk up to the car that's pulled over? Like, You need the reason. Why? We don't trust our dad. Right? Maybe for some of us that's what we need to confess and, and journal. So we've seen in our narrative, right, clearly the Spirit speaks. That's so clear. We've also seen through Philip that the Spirit speaks so often to send his kids into desert, dangerous places. But now the question is, okay, now we can ask the four-year-old question, why? Why? Well, the Spirit does these things because the Spirit saves. Look, he sent Philip to a desert place without explanation, but when Philip arrives, he does fairly quickly learn why he's there for one man, an outsider, somebody outside of God's family. Now, notice what we learn about this man from Ethiopia. He had traveled to Jerusalem for what? Do you see it? To worship. He's not a Jewish person. Um, he had been introduced, we think, to God or the faith or Hebrew writings. Clearly, he's got Isaiah's writings. So we know at the very least he's a spiritual man. We could say probably in our modern language he's a searching man. It feels like he's God-fearing or wants to be. I imagine him to be hopeful, kind of being awakened to the reality that he's a created being and he exists for someone or for something. He's an accomplished man, secretary of the treasury in one of the leading kingdoms 
and probably at the point in life that a lot of you are right now and a little bit dissatisfied and realizing the things you've been chasing all your life for meaning, purpose, and fulfillment come up short and come up empty. I think he's a searching man. And so he goes to Jerusalem to worship. But ultimately, guys, listen, this is so important. We don't, it's going on in the background. Listen to this. Jewish custom would have excluded this man from entering the temple and it would have excluded him from participating in the life of God's family. We read that he was a eunuch. A eunuch is a man who has been castrated, which was very common uh, for many male slaves, not in Jewish culture that was forbidden, but in many surrounding cultures. Uh, various reasons to care for a harem, to be entrusted with things uh, within a kingdom. It was, just, it was just common practice. And that's who this man is. And guys, there's a very specific verse in the Old Testament scriptures. It's Deuteronomy 23.1. And here's what it says. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. He traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to find out about this God and to be a part of a family to which he could not belong. And so now I think very intentionally Luke gives us the sense of he's, he's going away from Jerusalem. He had to go away. He was leaving. He was excluded. He was on the outside looking in. He's driving away. He's going home. And so now I imagine him sad, searching, confused, knowing he needs God, but not knowing who God really is. His assistant's driving. He's not driving. He's pouring over one of the prophet Isaiah scrolls. He's read it before. So he read it before and he was hopeful. I'm going to find this God, I'm going to belong to his people. And he goes. But now he's driving away, and so he's rereading. What did I misunderstand? How did I miss this? I, I don't belong here. So I think he's rereading, looking for hope, looking for something, looking for anything. Now, based on the quote in this chapter, we know that he's reading Isaiah 53. We know that's the portion of Isaiah's writings he's reading. Specifically, we have here that he's reading 7 and 8, but I'm, I'm sure he started way at the beginning of Isaiah. And he's probably been reading the entire road trip. And so now he's here. And you guys know Isaiah 53. And if you don't, it tells the story of one who would be called in the future a suffering servant. A man who would be despised and rejected. He would be called a man of sorrows. Can you imagine the Ethiopian right now? He is a man of sorrow. He's identifying, and then he reads, this man's going to be acquainted with grief, and he's like, I'm acquainted with grief. And then he reads, but this suffering servant bore our griefs, and he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our rebellion, and he brings peace, healing, joy, belonging, and he gives rebels a home in the father's family. That's what he wants, and it's exactly what he can't have. We have in verse 32 and 33 the portion of Isaiah that he's got. It reads, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And now Philip's here, just out of nowhere. And so the Ethiopian asks Philip, hey, um, 
is Isaiah talking about himself right here? Like, did he do that for your people? Or is he talking about somebody else? And if it's somebody else, who is it? Because I need him. That's who I need. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, beginning with Isaiah, he told this Ethiopian man the good news about Jesus. In other words, that though Isaiah did not know him by that name, through the Spirit, Isaiah was prophesying of the one who would come to rescue God's people and that Jesus is this suffering servant that Jesus experienced injustice on this earth on our behalf. But when we understand the gospel, we realize it was injustice here, but it was the Father's justice being poured out on the Son in our place. It was the justice we deserved as rebels. And Jesus' mouth was closed. He experienced humiliation. He was slaughtered in our place. And his death and resurrection bring us peace It brings us healing. It brings us rebels all the way home. But the Ethiopian's like, dude, that's not for me. Like, I want that, and I've read that, and that's why I came to Jerusalem, but I learned that I'm on the outside, and I'm too far away. It's not for me. I've heard it all before. But now Philip's in the chariot, and he's like, dog, You just have not read far enough in Isaiah's writing. You gotta look a little further down the page and check this out. They didn't have their chapter breakdowns like we do. It's just one long scroll, right? So he's like, but look, they already had the language we do. Scroll down, scroll down, right? He's scrolling down. And he gets, he moves from our chapter 53 to chapter 56. You guys aren't ready for this. Check this out. Verses three to five. Philip's like, dude, I got to show you something. Here's what our father says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, in other words, the foreigner who's looked to our God for hope, don't let him say this. The Lord will surely separate me from his people. That's how he was feeling right there. And now look, a eunuch is specifically addressed. How insane is that? Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. No hope for me. My roots aren't in the ground. There's no life for me here. Don't let him say that. Because thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than son, better than daughter. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You will be adopted in and no adopted in kid is ever kicked out of my family. Well, now the Ethiopian dude's got mixed emotions because that's exactly what he wants. And he's like, are you serious right now? How did I not know this or see this? But then I got to believe a second wave of emotions crashed over him and his joy was crushed when he realized how he could become a part of this family. What did it say? It says the foreigner's got to keep my Sabbaths. He's got to choose the things that please me. And he's got to perfectly keep my covenant and the eunuchs sitting there thinking, I have failed to keep the Sabbath. It's so hard to keep the Sabbath outside of God's family. I don't regularly choose the things that God would want. I choose what I want. And covenant, perfectly keeping the covenant? 
Forget about it. I am still on the outside looking in. And that's where Philip's opportunity to just gently and kindly share the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done for rebels with this man. And he could say to him, dude, Jesus did every one of these things for you. He is the perfect Sabbath keeper. The Sabbath points to him. He is our rest. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. You have failed to choose God's, what would please God. You do, we do. This is our story, guys. This is us. But Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father in your place. And covenant keeping, let's just be honest. God gives us an agreement to be in relationship and we have failed from day one and we fail hard. Maybe even when we want it, we're imperfectly expressing covenant keeping. Jesus kept the covenant in our place. And you know what? He didn't just keep the covenant in our place, that agreement. He took the consequences for our covenant failure in our place. He did all the work necessary so we could be adopted in. And that is the beauty of the gospel. And so now the the Ethiopian man says, all right, is there anything preventing me from being baptized then? Because before Philip explained who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, Everything was preventing the Ethiopian from being adopted, and he already knew the answer to the question. So now he's asking with new hope. Like, okay, so it sounds like Jesus did all all the work, like all of it. Is there anything preventing me from being adopted into God's forever family? No longer a rebel, but a son. Philip says there's nothing, man. Without Jesus, everything prevented you with Jesus. Nothing stands in your way. He's done all the work. So friends, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, and I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to say to you, like this Ethiopian man, I have no doubt that you have been in some desert places. And you may feel this morning that you are still in a desert place. Here's the good news for you. This is how good God is. Through the Spirit, He speaks to His kids And he sends those kids into your desert places for your good. That's what he does. He is the God who pursues. Did you know the leading scholars at the time considered Ethiopia to be the edge of the earth or the ends of the earth? What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Check. Judea. Check. As the persecution happened. Last week, Samaria. Check. Now what's happening? A dude from the ends of the earth had come to Jerusalem and is arguably probably the first person to believe in Jesus as rescuing king outside of Jewish culture, and he's going back to the edge of the earth. Guys, this story signals so powerfully that God is the God who pursues and that there's no place on this planet that you can hide from his rescuing pursuit. There are dark corners, no doubt. There are desert places, no doubt. You live in some of those places. You live in Okinawa. You live in a desert place that just happens to have a subtropical climate. God pursues. God goes there. There is nowhere that he doesn't go. So this entire story signals that I'm coming. Your father is coming for your rescue. He goes there and he sends his kids there. So can I just ask you a question? If you're not yet a Christian, what in the world is preventing you? from running to the arms of this rescuing creator and father who is sent for your rescue. If Jesus has done everything 
to make it possible for you to be accepted into this father's forever family and to receive mercy instead of judgment for the rebellion that you know you've lived in? What's preventing you? Like, I want you to seriously think about that question because from God's perspective, he's saying out loud to you right now through the Spirit, from my perspective, nothing's pre- 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 preventing you because Jesus has done all the work. So from your perspective, what's preventing you? Next week, we're going to have a pool of water right here. And we're going to baptize people. I wanted to do it today, but I recognize that some of you, when I ask, what's at, when, if I were to ask what's preventing you, you would say to me, John, I don't have a change of clothes. Check. Got it. No problem. We're doing next week. And we're going to baptize some people because I just happen to believe that deeply that the Spirit works this way. And so we're going to have a pool of water right there. And some of you are going to be baptized next week. I don't know who. I just believe that the Spirit is going to do this in the life of our family and our friends. Please seek me out if that's you, man. Dog, I will walk through Isaiah's scroll with you and show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Isaiah said. Did you know this is my story, actually, too? It's this story that the Spirit used to bring my heart to life. And I was baptized shortly after reading this story. Uh, Don't laugh at me too much, okay? That's my handwriting in the top. I was a super young kid. And if you can't read it, perfect, because I'm not going to read it for you. Um, my mom actually clipped this out of our childhood storybook Bible a couple years ago and mailed it to me here in Okinawa so that I could have it. But she would read our, she would read stories to us. And it was one night after she read this story of Philip and the man from Ethiopia that I realized I was just like the Ethiopian. Hopefully not in every way, but I'm sure as a young kid, I was a little bit freaked out about this whole story, right? But I realized I was on the outside looking in. I realized I needed a rescuer. And I realized that what Isaiah had written. He was pointing to Jesus, and Jesus was, was my rescuing king. And I needed mercy, and I wanted to be baptized as a demonstration that I was an adopted in, rescued rebel in my father's family. We could have that in common in our stories. And then I could baptize you next week. It'd be awesome. For those of you who are here this morning as Christians, I want to ask you the same question. What's preventing you And I don't mean baptism. I know most of you have been baptized. What I'm asking you is, what's preventing you from living this story out for yourself? I mean, do we believe that the Spirit still speaks? And look, I understand we come from different theological backgrounds. I love Okinawa for that reason. It's like a river, it's a confluence. And so we all come from different church backgrounds. We get slammed together on this little island, and it's beautiful. Love it. But even if you don't believe the Spirit speaks audibly now, confessionally, if you're a Christian, I know you believe the Spirit speaks here. So we are on the same page anyway. And I know we, we agree that the Spirit has spoken definitively that we exist to be His witnesses here. So you don't need for Him to show up necessarily and say, I want you to go to that car and to that person. That would be super cool if He did for you. And I pray He does. It's already right here. Like We know that's why we exist. What's preventing us? What, what is preventing us? If we believe the Spirit speaks, if we believe the Spirit sends, that's why you're in Okinawa. He sends to save people in faraway desert places. What's preventing us? My final journal entry this week, uh, just for myself personally, and as I pray to my father, was um, on Wednesday. It sounds like I skipped a few days there, but I did. Um, I just wrote, Dad, yesterday I confessed that I don't listen well. Today I need to confess that I don't run well. But I want this, though. I want this. I want to hear you, Spirit, and I want to run in obedience. And I, too, infrequently open my mouth not frequently enough to share the gospel with not yet Christians. Uh, 
Dad, have mercy. Change my heart. Empower me through your spirit. Make me a listener. Make me a runner. And open my mouth. I wonder what would happen if together as a family, you know, don't pray my prayer, that's mine. You've got to write your own. But what if just like as a family, that was our shared desire? What do you think the Spirit would do here in Okinawa? I think it would be insane, insanely life-giving. Grant and Heather are going to come now, and we're going to sing a song entitled, Oh, Come to the Altar. There's a line in there that says, The Father's arms are open wide, and forgiveness was purchased by the blood of Jesus. For those of you who are not yet Christians, your father is already waiting, and you have a version of Christianity that has taught you that you need to run to him for rescue. But the truth of the gospel is that he has already run to you for your rescue. And we pray that the Spirit would open your eyes so that you could see your father is already in the desert with you with open arms ready to give you mercy instead of judgment because of Jesus' work. What's preventing you? And for you Christians here this morning, guys, we already know. We forget, but you know your father's good, right? You know he's kind, and you know he's full of mercy. He's not angry. He's not an abusive dad. And so when you run to him this morning to confess that you don't listen well, you don't run well, and you don't open your mouth well, he's going to, he's going to give you a warm embrace and affirm you in Christ and if we ask him, he will work in our hearts through his spirit, and he will change us. He will pour out his mercy, not judgment. He will change us. What's preventing us? Why don't we ask together as a family?